by show of hands, how many of you here love roller coasters? Raise your hand if you love roller coasters. All right. All right, hands up. Raise your hand if you hate roller coasters. You can't stand roller coasters. All right. It seems like you're either on one extreme or the other, aren't you? You either love roller coasters or you can't stand them. They scare you to death. Now, I know this will come as a surprise to most of you, but I'm not the biggest thrill seeker in life. Um, so I don't, <laughs> shocking, you know. Uh, I'm so conservative here. Uh, but I don't love roller coasters. But it seems every single year that the, the, the challenge is on, isn't it? To come up with the biggest, the fastest, the craziest um, roller coaster that you can imagine. Well, as of today, the largest roller coaster in the world is at Six Flags called the Kingda Ka. Anybody ever ridden that roller coaster before? There's a picture of it. Supposedly, there's a 418-foot drop, a drop on there. It goes so fast that in less than four seconds, you go from zero to 128 miles an hour. The ride is so quick that it lasts less than a minute. Now, since those of us here are either cheap or we couldn't afford to go on vacation for Labor Day, um, that was a joke, by the way, for most of us, right? Um, I thought I would bring the theme park to us today. So if you get motion sickness, you want to turn around for just a minute or close your eyes because we are going to experience what it is like. No, don't worry. The pews aren't going to move. We didn't put hydraulics in the pews. <laughs> Balcony, just hold on. You know, we know why you sit up there. You got the comfortable seats. All right. So hold on and let's see what it's like to experience this roller coaster. It's 45 seconds. Let's show this video, Jacob. For how many of you did your, did your heart beat a little bit faster just by watching a video right there? You know, in, in many ways, um, let's be honest, our lives can be described like a roller coaster, can't they? We all have ups and downs in lives, and we have twists and turns, and if someone were to ask us about our lives, sometimes we would explain our lives to, to someone that we don't know from one pit to the next, that we've gone from this difficulty to this difficulty. Now, I, I hope that we can't relate exactly to Joseph, and we can't say that our pit involves being thrown into slavery um, by our brothers at 17 years old or thrown into prison by a false accusation. But each and every one of us, we've all had those valleys or those pits in our life where we can say, this happened and it was something that was beyond my control. I couldn't do anything, but I found myself in this situation. Every time I read the story of Joseph, I think of a roller coaster. Think about the ups and downs that Joseph had in his life. When he's 17 years old, he's up pretty high, isn't he? Things are going well. He's his father's favorite. He's given this coat of many colors, but then life comes crashing down because his brothers don't like, they resent him. They beat him up. They're going to leave him for dead, but they put him in a pit. But instead they said, hey, we'll sell him into slavery in Egypt. Pretty low, right? But then once he ends up in Egypt, he ends up in Potiphar's house. And because of God's favor on his life, he ends up being seen as the overseer of Potiphar's house. Things are going back up again, right? But then once again, he honors the Lord. He's obedient to the Lord. 
He resists the sexual advances from Potiphar's wife. And so he's accused of rape and he's thrown into prison. So life goes back down once again, doesn't it? But then the the Bible tells us that Moses, the author, says that even when he's in prison, that God's favor is upon Joseph's life and that he's placed and has a special place that he's in charge of even when he's in prison. Life's back up again. But then this morning in Genesis chapter 40, and I hope if you have your Bibles, you'll turn there, we're going to see that even when he's in prison, things start to go well. Life is going to once again come crashing down on us. Last Sunday, I shared with you that suffering and adversity, that it should be viewed as just a normal part of the Christian life. We should not be surprised when we go through times of hardships or times of adversity. In fact, for those of us who are walking with the Lord, Scripture guarantees us that adversity, that suffering, that trials, that difficulties, that will be a natural part of our righteous living before God. I didn't have time last week, but I want to give you some scriptures that prove this is, is the, uh, the case. Um, first scripture we have is 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, Indeed, all, not some, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, what's that next word? Persecuted. It's not just a one-time deal. Here we go. First, uh, James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when... Not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that, here's the key phrase, the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. One final verse. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the, what the next two words, the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering and adversity, they are, we should not be surprised when they occur to us. We should expect to have some difficulties in our lives, even as followers of Jesus. My hope is that as we have studied the life of Joseph and as we continue to study the life of Joseph, is that we will learn how we can live our lives through two things. First, how can we live our lives in a way that we glorify God, but also how can we live our lives in such a way that they will count, not just for the 60, 70, 80, 90 years we're here on earth, but they will count for eternity. And how do we do that while we're living even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, even when we're living in the midst of the pits of our life? So with that, let's jump into Genesis chapter 40. We'll begin by seeing Joseph's position in prison. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So here we see that two of Pharaoh's officials, that they have angered him for some reason. We were not given what they had done, but they've angered him so much so that he's thrown them into prison. Now, the two officials that we know of are the cupbearer and the baker. I'm not sure what happened to the candlestick maker, but I'm sure he's thrown in there. I worked on that all week. Come on, guys. All right, we'll keep going. What was the cupbearer's job? 
The cupbearer had a very specific job here, right? The cupbearer's job, he was to test the food or to taste the wine to make sure that there was no poison in there before the king would taste the food or, or, or taste the wine to make sure that if someone was going to die, it wasn't going to be the king, right? It was going to be the cupbearer. Now, because of this, the relationship between the cupbearer and the king had to be very close. There had to be a lot of trust between these two positions. By the way, do you remember who the most famous cupbearer that we know of in the Old Testament? Yeah, Nehemiah. Remember the story of Nehemiah? Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and he, they had such a close relationship that when Nehemiah had a desire to go back to Jerusalem, to his home, to rebuild the walls, that when he asked the king that he relieves him of his duty to go and back to Jerusalem to rebuild those walls, that was the, the trust that they had between each other. So something must have happened to break the trust between the cupbearer and the king, so much so that he's angered that he throws the cupbearer and the baker into prison. And since we know that God is in charge of the story, it just so happens that he ends up, they both end up in the same prison where Joseph had been thrown into Potiphar's prison. Now, what I want you to see here is that it's only because Joseph, as we talked about last week, only because Joseph had released any sense of bitterness that he had in his life that he's able to meet this opportunity that's put in front of him. We're about to see that because he had released this bitterness that he could have held on to from his brothers, he could have held on to from Potiphar's wife, he could have been holding on to this bitterness because of what Potiphar had done to him, but we are about to see because he has released that bitterness from his life, he is now going to see the opportunity that the Lord is about to place in front of him, beginning in verse 4. It says, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with them in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? In verse 4, when it says that Joseph attended to them, that word attended literally means that Joseph ministered to them. See, instead of holding on to this bitterness that against what Potiphar had done to him, Joseph, he not only continues to obey his master, but he also made it his business to minister to those who were in prison with him. Now, per now, perhaps Joseph had been in prison for some time now. We're not sure exactly how long he had been in prison, but what we do know is that he had to have been lonely. He had to have experienced some loneliness while he's there. And I think, just in my personal interpretation, that it was in his loneliness that God was preparing him for greatness, that God was preparing him for the assignment that he had in store for him next. Friends, doesn't God work that way? Haven't you seen that in your own life, if you've been walking with the Lord, that God will take the greatest tragedy that you've ever experienced in your life, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, the loss of a job, a learning disability, whatever it might be that you might be going through this difficulty and you will see that through that struggle, God will allow you at some point down the road 
to identify with someone who is going through the exact same difficulty that you're going through. And the power and the beauty of the gospel is that he will take that struggle, he will take that season of the valley of your life, and he will allow you to minister to someone through it. That's the power of the gospel. One of the passages that I constantly refer back to when we're talking about the power of the gospel to take what was used for harm in our life and how God can transform it is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to these two verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? Why does God comfort us in our affliction? Here it is. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So these two officials, they come before Joseph. And what do they say? Verse 8. They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one here to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, most Egyptians, they believed that when they had these dreams, that they were symbolic of the future, that they were foreshadowing what was taking place. So when these two Egyptians have these dreams, they're worried about what these dreams mean for the future. But what's terrible for them is that there's no Egyptian there in prison that has the gift of interpreting the dreams. Little do they know that they are standing before the dreamer of all dreamers, right? And so we're going to see that Joseph is going to have confidence, not in his ability to interpret the dreams, but he's clear to say that all interpretations belong to who? God. He had every reason at this point, think about this, to question whether or not God was even on his side at this point. Sold into slavery by his brothers, obeying God, and what do I get for not giving in to sexual temptation? Thrown into prison. It's honestly, in my opinion, it's quite fascinating. It's almost miraculous that he would even have anything else left to do with dreams anymore. The last time he tried to interpret a dream more than a decade ago, it wound him up in prison where he is. And yet he says, hey, no, 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 I want to hear about this. The eagerness that Joseph has to hear these dreams, the eagerness that he has to interpret these dreams, it doesn't reveal confidence in his own abilities. No, it reveals his confidence in God, that God loves him and that God cares for him. And it seems as if the cupbearer was also confident in Joseph's ability. More than likely, the cupbearer and the baker, they didn't worship the God of Joseph. But they saw his confidence, they saw his trust in God, and so the cupbearer begins to say, let me tell you about my dream. The second section we have, verses 9 through 19, is we see um, the two dreams that they give them. Now, let me summarize what happens in verses 9 through 19. First, we have the dream of the cupbearer. The cupbearer has this interesting dream, and in this dream there's a vine. And this vine has three branches, and there's grapes that come off from these branches. And the cupbearer squeezes the grapes into Pharaoh's cup and ends up giving the cup back to Pharaoh. The interpretation of that dream, according to Joseph, was that the cupbearer would be restored to his former position in just three days. The number three was significant there. 
So after Joseph interprets this dream, he simply makes one small request from the cupbearer. Here's the request he makes, verses 14 and 15. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, meaning prison. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. I love these two verses right here. I love them because it shows us the humanity of Joseph. Did Joseph trust God? Absolutely. Did Joseph ever doubt that God was going to come through and lead? I don't think so. But he's still human, isn't he? He still wanted out of this prison. So he makes one simple request of the cupbearer. Just remember me when you get out. When you get out, just tell Pharaoh about me so I can get out of this pit. But as I read and read and reread this passage, there's one thing that stuck out to me in verse 15. Let me read verse 15, part of it, and I want you to see if this sticks out to you as well. Listen to what he says. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. I was indeed what? What's that next word? Stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. He doesn't say, well, I was wrongly accused. He doesn't say I was beat up by my brothers and sold into slavery. Why? Because remember, he's free of that bitterness. He says simply, I was stolen out of my homeland. And so after the baker hears this positive interpretation of this dream, he, he gets probably excited, I think, that, hey, if his dream is that he's getting out in three days, maybe my, mine will be just the same. So let me tell you my dream, Joseph. So the baker tells him his dream, and his dream is a little bit different, but there's three baskets, and each of these baskets are filled with various types of bread. And there's a bird that comes and eats the bread out of the top basket. So Joseph, give me the good news. Tell me what that means for me. Here's his interpretation. In three days' time, he would have his head lifted off. Not lifted up, but lifted off. The cupbearer's head was lifted up, by the way. He would be hanged, and the birds would feast upon his body. Now, in both of these dreams, Joseph, he's not very vague in the interpretation, is he? He's very specific. Here is what's going to happen. Two specific dreams that happen to different people. And he says, this is what the prophecy is. And here's how the outcome is going to take place. So if both of these prophecies, if they come to fruition, surely it would be that much harder to assume that Joseph was just lucky in his interpretation, wouldn't it? If they both come true, instead, it would be what? It would be proof that God was with him, that God had given him the ability to interpret these dreams. So let's keep reading in, in, in verses 20 and 23 and see what was the fulfillment of these dreams. Begin in verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants, and he lifted up the head, key phrase, of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Remember the dream? It's exactly how the dream was given. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. But what? Forgot him. 
for 11 years now, Joseph was confident that that dream that God had given him at 17 years old would come true. It didn't matter what the circumstances were. It didn't matter what he was going through. He was confident that God had given him this dream. And eventually, at some point, this dream will come true because this dream was from God. And don't you think that after this dream, both of these dreams have been correctly interpreted? Now he had seen how it had come to fruition that now, I almost think that now he's doubly certain that now that dream that I had 11 years, it's surely going to happen because I interpreted this dream and what I thought was going to happen from God, it did happen. But then we notice and we see that I have to believe. Remember, this is a true story. So many times we read the Bible and we think, oh, that's some great stories of moral failures and moral victories. But put yourself in Joseph's shoes here for a minute. Don't you think that after these two dreams and the interpretations come true, don't you think in your mind that Joseph is just sitting there in prison, anticipating it any day now, I'm going to hear the words, Joseph, come on out. Joseph, Pharaoh says you've been released. You've been acquitted from all of your failures. Come on, you're free. But it didn't happen. Days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. Months end up going into two years before he's remembered. We learn that from the very first verse of Genesis chapter 41, where it says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Notice that description there. After two whole years. King James' translation says, after two full years. I believe that these two full years, after the cupbearer had been released from prison, I think these must have been two of the darkest years of Joseph's life. And that's where the story ends in Genesis chapter 40. Let me be transparent with you for just a moment here. I've known this sermon was coming up. I've had this mapped out since October of last year, how I was going to go through the sermons for this year. And it was so tempting for me to attach chapter 41 with chapter 40. You say, why? Because how in the world am I supposed to give you a message of hope, a message of the silver lining in that cloud, ending here in chapter 40. I so inside of me wanted to rush through chapter 40. Let's get to chapter 41. Let's get through the conflict and let me show you how God does come through in them because he does. We're going to see that next week. Isn't that where we are in life? Let's just get through the conflict. Let's get through all the hard stuff and let's get to where God is because that's where we want to live. We want to get through the junk. We want to get through what I call the, the in-between stages of our life. And let's just get to where God wins. Let's get to the victory. We all struggle with that. We all want to get through the hard times and just get to the victory. We all have the different, what I can sometimes call the waiting period of life. For some of us, we're waiting for something or for someone to change. For some of us, we're waiting for our circumstances to change. Maybe we're waiting for that doctor's diagnosis to come through. Maybe we're waiting for that next job to come in. 
For some of us, we're simply waiting for, for just to, to fit in with a group of people. We're waiting, God, just give me some genuine friendships. God, just allow me to be accepted by my peers. We all are waiting for that, whatever it might be. Just get me through this waiting period because I know you're gonna come through in the end, but I don't enjoy where I am right now. But friends, listen to me. Haven't we all learned, for those who have been walking with God, that it's in that in-between phase, in that waiting period, that God teaches us the most? Think about it. It's during the space between here and now, wherever that might be, that God takes us to a deeper level of trusting him. It's in this in-between period that we have to let go of all the expectations, maybe all the dreams that we had for our lives, and all we're left with while we're waiting is that all we can do is cling to him. It's during this in-between phase that God shapes us and that he molds us more and more into his image. Sadly, many Christians have believed a lie that has been taught from so many false pastors. And they simply say that if you follow the Lord, if you have enough faith, you will never have any difficulties. Your life will never have any problems. Just give enough money to the church, just do enough good things and your life will go well. All I can say about that is I'm so glad that, that, that Joseph didn't believe that. Because if he had believed that, imagine what would have happened to him when he was in the pit wondering what in the world is going on. He might have questioned whether God was even with him and he could have missed that moment that God was preparing him to use him to minister to those two, the cupbearer and the baker who were in prison with him. Thank goodness the apostle Paul didn't believe that false theology. The testimony of Joseph that we learn up to this point and what we've studied in his life is this. It's to remember that every Christian, especially those who are walking closely with him, will suffer. Now there's good news in this. The good news is that God can and he will use our suffering for his purpose and for his glory. Friends, if you are suffering right now, if you're in that in-between phase right now of your life, let me give you the scripture to hold on to. This promise is found three different times, almost word for word throughout scripture. But I'm going to give it to you just in Deuteronomy. Um, I want you to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Write this verse down. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread. Why? For it is the Lord, your God, who goes with you. And here's the greatest promise that you can have. Joseph knew this, and I hope that you know this as well. He will not leave you or forsake you. And right now, if you're in that season of uncertainty in your life, you can't feel God's presence, you are doubting why he would allow certain things to happen in your life, hear me on this. I am not going to stand here this morning and give you a simple answer or a simple quote that's going to take all the hurt away from your life. How dare I think that I could trivialize or minimize the real pain in your life? 
Chances are, if you come up to me after the service and you explain, here's what's going on, I'm not even going to try to explain why I think that God has allowed this to happen in your life. Sometimes I think we are so quick to think that we have to explain God when instead I think he just wants us to sit and learn about his faithfulness. Instead, here's what I will leave you with this morning. I can't give you the why. I can't give you a short little answer or a quote that you can tweet, and man, that makes your life feel so much better. But what I can give you are two simple things that you can hold on to. Two things that you can hold on to when you feel like you're all alone. Two things that you can hold on to when you cannot understand what God is doing in your life. I want you to write these two things down. The first thing you can do is to look back at what God has done. The more you've studied God's Word, the longer that you have walked with God, the easier it will be to trust Him even when you are walking through difficulties. Why? Because you've tested Him. You've seen His faithfulness in your life time after time after time. And friends, right now, knowing what God is up to in the moment, that's difficult. It's almost impossible to try to understand everything and why God is allowing certain things to happen in your life right now. But here's the thing. It's much easier to look back in Scripture and in your life and to see how God has worked in the past, to see how He has proven Himself over and over again by going back and seeing how God has providentially worked through past circumstances. It gives us assurance that he is working right now, even in our present, even in the midst of the turmoil and the, and the mess that we're in right now. It reminds me of the chorus of that great hymn, Great is thy what? Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Listen to this next line. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed what? Say it with me. Your hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. You can't understand what God is doing in your life. You first look back and you see how he has been faithful. And the second thing you can do is to look ahead at what God has promised. Friends, hear me on this. While suffering and difficulty may define your life right now in this season, we can praise God that we look forward and we have a hope, we have a promise, we have an assurance that that suffering will one day come to an end. Psalm 30 verse 5 says that while weeping may tarry for the night, what? Joy comes in the morning. Our times of suffering have an ending point, but praise God, eternity with God has no end. And that is the promise that we're giving. By remembering how God has been faithful in the past, looking forward to what he has promised in the future, it will help us endure whatever difficulty we are facing today. So yes, we're going to end here in Genesis chapter 40. And here's the promise that I hope you hold on to. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. 
In fact, God has promised that he will use this difficulty, he will use these questions, he will use these things that you may never know the answer to on this side of eternity, he will use them and he will work for you to bring you closer to him. And my prayer for you this week, my prayer is that he will strengthen your faith just like he did Joseph's faith even when you're in the waiting period, even when you don't have all the answers, cling to him. I promise he'll be faithful. Will you pray with me?